following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York.
But this person that I was talking to also happened to be a woman herself. She was a mother, saying this about her own children, about her own daughter. So um, I knew deep down, like I wasn't like shaken by one person telling me this information. You know, I, I knew that it wasn't right, but being young and looking to the Bible and these passages that people often use um, to say women shouldn't be in ministry, they're not, like, terribly comforting. I don't know if you've read them. Um, the ones that are often used, like, if you just look at them at face value, they, they do sort of seem like maybe women shouldn't be speaking in church. Um, but I had a couple things going for me personally. One was that I was raised in a family where I was taught, you know, there's nothing girls can't do. That was never a part of my thinking whatsoever, that I was limited because of my gender. And I also was really lucky, like, I visited a few different Christian colleges, and I'm sure glad that I went to Roberts, because um, Roberts Wesleyan was very affirming of women in ministry and the free Methodists and um, that tradition. So I was very fortunate to have professors and supporters and stuff, stuff there. So when I was in college, I went to a, or when I was in high school, I'm sorry, I went to a preview day at Roberts where you stay overnight and you get to experience it. And I went to a New Testament, entered a New Testament class taught by Casey Davis. Some of you might know him. He's wonderful. Um, and the topic that day, like, just happened to be a passage that discouraged women from ministry. And so I got to hear from an expert in ancient culture um, his take on this passage. And just knowing that there was so much more behind the words of Scripture, hearing that about the culture and about the background, just opened this whole new world for me. I was already passionate about the Bible and the church, and so to hear that there was this, this whole new world called hermeneutics, um, biblical interpretation was really exciting. And so I, I went to Roberts, and I, and I studied that, and here I am today. <laughs> um, so what I want to do <laughs> is take a look at, actually, that passage we studied that day in class, and it's also a passage that Scott McKnight uses in the Blue Parakeet as part of his case study. So the case study really shows how to look at a difficult passage in the Bible and understand it in light of the bigger picture, which is really, really important. <laughs> um, so you can, we can take a look at 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. I think that the words are actually on the next slide, so you don't have to open it up if you don't want to. Here it is. You ready? Women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So you can see why this passage might like pose a little problem. <laughs> if that's all you read and that's all you know about, it sounds like what I'm doing right now is not really a great idea, <laughs> according to Paul, anyway, the author of this passage. But as you know, there's more than meets the eye, and you know because you've been listening to Scott's sermons that we can't just take a couple verses out and look at them. We have to look at them in context. And so if you have your Bibles open, you'll notice if you, if you look up to verse 26 that there is a heading for this chunk of Scripture. Does anyone see what the heading is? You can yell it out. Orderly worship. So when you hear this passage, the first thing that comes to mind might not be that it's just directions 
for a worship service. But this passage, every single line has very specific directions on how to have a worship service, how to have orderly worship. So there was a problem. (laughs) Worship was messy. Worship was loud. There was interrupting going on. And so there's very specific directions in this passage on how to have orderly worship. So we need to look at that in this context. Now, we are in a worship service here, and I am a woman speaking, so we're still not not quite there yet. (laughs) That's just the beginning. Um, The next kind of layer that we have to look at is the culture. We know that the Bible was written in a specific place, in a specific time, and for a specific audience. And I really believe it's irresponsible to read it without acknowledging those things. Um, So McKnight puts it this way. God spoke in those days, in those ways, and those were male days and male ways. (laughs) So we know, most of you know, that in ancient culture, in the time the Bible was written, women didn't have a whole lot of value. That's acknowledged. And so we have to take that into account. And here I have an example from the blue parakeet, um, but but it's actually an ancient prayer that rabbis would have prayed. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. Understandable. Gentiles were no good. Um, praise be thou, O Lord, who, didn't, who did not make me a boar. Also understandable. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Now understand, this isn't, these aren't the words of scripture. This was simply a prayer that might have been heard around that day. This is a prayer that the rabbis would have said. And probably part of the reason they're saying it is because women weren't not included in all parts of the law, and so they were thankful to be included in all of religious life. So I guess that makes it a little bit better. Um, Now, there was also this Jewish law code called the Mishnah around the time that, again, was not the law, but were things that were added to the law for people to follow. Here are some of the words of the Mishnah. May the words of the Torah, the scripture, be burned than that they should be handed over to a woman. And whoever teaches his daughter Torah teaches her obscenity. So the women that are in this messy worship service are women who are uneducated. They may not have been included in all of temple life before. The men typically had a religious education, memorized scripture, had knowledge of all this stuff. The women didn't. So could you understand why they might be asking their husbands some questions? (laughs) Um, Sometimes in some churches it's possible, too, that women and men sat separately. So if the women were entirely on this side of the room and entirely uneducated, and the men were entirely on this side of the room and had an education and information and knowledge, and you're listening to a sermon and there aren't really rules, the women might have been yelling across the room to their husbands to ask questions. Ooh, Hello. So you can see why worship could have gotten kind of messy because of this particular issue. Um, Hello, am I still here? Okay, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Um, All right, so McKnight says a really interesting quote, which I think is going to come up here. Do we seek to retrieve that cultural world, recognizing that that was the culture back then and not what God had ordained, And those cultural expressions, or do we live the same gospel in a different way in a different day? So some some people would say that we do receive retrieve those cultural expressions because that's what's in the Bible and we follow every single word of the Bible. 
I would say that it's really important to acknowledge that, that culture influenced the people who are writing and listening to the Bible, and that maybe the words that were written were meant for a specific place and time, and the essence of them is good for us today, but maybe not the specifics. Um, finally, McKnight's main point in most of the case study is that we need to look at um, God's big story, is what we call it with the kids um, in the preteen ministry. God's big story is Genesis to Revelation. What happens in the Bible? There is an overarching story. And if you've read the Blue Parakeet, you know, and you've heard in the sermons, the story, the story, the story. It's really important to read the Bible with a story in mind. Because here we see one verse that maybe doesn't fit in with the whole story. And which is more important, a couple verses or the story? So if we look at the story, we see that there are some females who played some leading roles. In the Old Testament, there are women like Miriam. She was the sister of Moses. She played a huge role in Moses' story, which in itself is big because Moses is a very main character of the Bible. Um, But she herself was also a spiritual leader of Israel during some of the most important moments in their history, during the Exodus and wandering in the desert. And so you can find Miriam's songs and her, her spiritual leadership right there in the Old Testament. Um, there's also a leader, Deborah, you may have heard of. She was one of the judges. It says that Deborah grew up like a mother for Israel, not like a mother who just stays home and that's all she does. She was a military leader mother. <laughs> um, Deborah took a nation that was being oppressed by a foreign king that the military... It was bad. They were kind of sitting on their butts, is what it says right there in Judges. Um, And she fought some really important battles. And the Bible says that by the time she was done with her most important battles, there were 40 years of peace in Israel. So she came to a nation that was in bad shape, and she left it better off. Um, Sounds like women can lead, maybe. (laughs) Um, If we turn to the New Testament, if you want to look, in Romans 16... There's the passage up there, page 925. Romans 16 has Paul's greetings to the church in Rome. It's the very end of the book. And so he's just kind of sending his hellos along with his letter. And we get to see, we get a little peek into who he is close to and who he wants to say hello to. So let me flip mine open here. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencre, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require for you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla, which is a female name, (laughs) and Aquila, a male name, who work with me in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles." Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, another female name, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. That's where we stop there. So you can see in this list that it is not just a list of men. This is representative of the early church. You can see that first, Phoebe was a benefactor. Um, She supported the church. She was a deacon, so she did a lot of work. Priscilla and Aquila were 
like church planters. They had a church that meant in their home. Junia, it says, was recognized as prominent among the apostles, along with her husband, but it doesn't even matter. For a woman to be recognized as prominent among the apostles is incredibly significant. Apostles are the, the highest level as far as Christianity is concerned. They're the ones that learned right alongside Jesus. To be an apostle, you have to have met Jesus in person and learned right from him. And so these were the very first Christians who got Christianity off the ground. And so to be recognized as prominent as a female is significant, especially when you consider the culture where women were not valued, were not educated. Um, so at the very least, we have some exceptions to culture here popping up within the church. So when we look at the context of the passage, we understand that we're talking about a worship service here. When we look at the culture, we're talking about women who were denied education. And when we look at God's big story, we see that women have played leading roles all along the way. So we come back to our 1 Corinthians passage with that knowledge and sort of wonder what Paul's, Paul's real intentions were here. Some people use specifically these words to say that this is a hard and fast rule across all of Christianity that women should not lead and should not speak in church because of these verses. And that's actually, there's, there's, I'm sure there's more churches in America that would not allow a woman to be a senior pastor than would. Um, so that's really sad, considering <laughs> that our culture is not opposed to it today. Um, our culture is generally supportive of women. So... I mean, relatively. <laughs> when you consider the difference, it's really appalling that the church is so far behind in supporting women in ministry. Um, so this is a case study. We're, we're looking at this to understand how, how to understand the Bible. These things, this is the way we, we approach scripture. Um, we can look at this in a much different light, knowing the context, knowing the culture, and knowing the story. Um, we know that women were certainly not relegated to the home and were given really some impressive leadership roles throughout Scripture. And so we need to keep in mind these things. But the real question, I think for me, maybe some of you knew some of this information before. Maybe some of it was new to you. To me, the question is, so what now? We allow women in ministry, which is wonderful. But what about in our personal relationship with the Bible? <laughs> um, we can have positions on these subjects, and that's wonderful. But maybe some of it kind of affects the way that we see Scripture. So for me, I wanted to share with you some more of my experience back at college. <laughs> I started Bible classes, and that was wonderful, and I was so excited. And scripture began to open up for me in a whole new way. Things like this, where like, I never thought of that before. But as I took more classes and I learned from more educated professors and uh, read more books by well-respected authors, I began to feel really not confident in my own ability to read the Bible and began to feel like, if I, if I read it by myself, that's just pointless. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just obviously going to miss the point because I need to like go sit in the campus library in order to to study, um, to study scripture. So for me, um, my Bible kind of sat on the shelf when I wasn't in class or doing homework. And still to this day, I still 
see my Bible sometimes and see a big warning label when I look at it, metaphorically, um, that tells me, you can't do this. Like, there's, don't open me up because you're not an expert, so don't do it. And McKnight acknowledges that that is one of the responses that many people might have to this kind of information. Other people may feel completely inspired, and maybe you have lots of time to research, and that's great, and, and learn all about it all. Um, but for me, it makes me feel a little bit discouraged that the Bible is this way, and that we have to have these case studies to understand how to read it. Um, and maybe you felt this way too. Maybe for you, there's other things that have prevented you from opening up your Bible. Um, Maybe there's ways that the Bible has been used in the past that made you feel uncomfortable or made you feel maybe even hurt or unfairly judged, so you don't really want to open your Bible. Um, Maybe you've been taught to use shortcuts. McKnight refers earlier in his book to shortcuts that we use to read the Bible, like reading it just as a book of rules or laws or just as a book of promises or a puzzle you have to figure out. And no matter what shortcut you use, the Bible doesn't neatly fit into any of those packages, and maybe that's been frustrating for you as you've read the Bible and you felt like giving up. Or maybe reading the Bible has really challenged you personally, and you know that if you open it up, you're just going to feel guilty. (laughs) Um, So you don't open it up, or you do on occasion. (laughs) Now, Scott has challenged us recently. He's had a list up on the slide, which... We don't have today, but maybe you have seen that in the past. He's been challenging us to read either like a psalm a day or a chapter a day or a new book we haven't read before. Maybe you've taken him up on that, and that's awesome. And maybe as you've started reading daily, you've been noticing that there's something that kind of blocks you or is an obstacle for you in really engaging with the Scripture, engaging with the Bible. Maybe something in your past, maybe something that just mentally goes off for you when you go to open it up or when you start reading it. Um, Maybe you haven't taken them up on that because you really don't want to read your Bible. And there's there's some reason there that just you don't want to do it. And um, maybe there's a warning label on there for you. Now, I keep saying warning label because if you look under your chairs, go ahead. There's a little piece of paper that I designed all by myself. You might, you might know my husband's a graphic designer, but he didn't touch this one at all. <laughs> you can tell because it's mostly a gray blob. Um, anyway, um, Scott really encouraged me to have something tangible. And since I work with kids and stuff, I wanted to do something sort of visual for you. So there's a picture of a Bible, just like the Bibles we have in the sanctuary here with a warning label on it. And maybe it's not like a big, huge, flashing warning label for you that's something on your Bible. Um, But I'd like you to think about when you look at your Bible, when you think about reading your Bible, if you feel like a tug on your heart to turn to it, what stops you from doing that? What goes off in your mind that says, "Mm, maybe not today or maybe not ever? (laughs) Um, So I want you to kind of pause and think about that for a minute. Write something down if you thought of something. Maybe you feel like you have an amazing relationship with the Bible, and I am so thankful that there are people that do. Um, you know, a lot of us are messed up, but, but God can redeem that. So that's, I want to look at the things that are stopping us, and by acknowledging them, we can change them. So go ahead and take a look at that for a minute and just ponder your warning label.
All right, children handed them out, so I'm a, I apologize if you don't have one. There's a whole stack of them. Oh, it ended up up here. There should be pens near your Bibles, too, around, if you want to write. Or you just want to look at it and think. That's fine, too. All right, hopefully that was enough time to at least start the thought process in that direction. Um, Take those home if you want to. Put them somewhere where you'll make sure they go with you. And spend some time praying about that. If you didn't think of anything or if you didn't really flesh out your ideas, let God help you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about that. Um, And it's also sometimes really helpful to share that with other people. So um, if there's someone at home you can talk to, just just tell them what you wrote or what you would write. Um, or if there's something that came up for you that you really feel like you need some spiritual guidance on, um, talk to any of us like on the leadership team or Scott and I, and we're happy to pray with you and give you advice if that's something that you're looking for. Now most of you know that our theme for this year is being shaped by the words. So I would love for us to move forward with this theme for this year, letting go of the things that hold us back from having a a good relationship with the Bible. McKnight says in his book, our relationship with the Bible is actually, if we are properly engaged, a relationship with the God of the Bible. So maybe you tend to think of it as words on a page, but we need to remember that behind it is our relationship with the God of the story. This is God's big story. And this is our story. This is a, the Bible is a story of people living, journeying with God throughout the centuries, just as we're doing now. So we are a part of God's big story as well. And if we don't interact with it, we're missing out on our rich history, the history of the people following God. So I encourage you to find out if there's anything keeping you from engaging properly, as McKnight says, with the Bible, so that you can engage properly with God and so that you can be shaped this year by God's big story. So next, (laughs) I would normally say thank you and walk off, but we're going to move into a time of communion. Um, The teachers are going to love me today because I'm way shorter than Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which was a goal of mine. I'm often one of those teachers. So I would like to read to you, right from the story, some words to kick off our time of communion. All right. These are the words of Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, 
Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not like that which your ancestors ate and died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. So go ahead and pick up your kids and come and partake in the bread, which represents Christ, our living bread, and the juice and the wine, which represents his blood. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.